Welcome to FinTech at Haas. Today I'm joined by Jim Brewstar, President and Co-Founder of Treasury Prime. Treasury Prime is an API banking platform that helps banks grow faster and enables fintechs to open and service online bank accounts at scale. Prior to Treasury Prime, Jim was part of the founding team at Standard Treasury, which went through Y Combinator and later sold to Silicon Valley Bank in 2015. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I've got so many questions ready for you, so I'm just going to dive straight into it, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. What's the problem that Treasury Prime is solving, and how is that different to the problem that Standard Treasury was solving? Sure. So Treasury Prime is a technology company, and what we do is we connect fintechs and banks through our APIs. Um, and that lets fintechs quickly and easily embed banking services in their applications. Um, this is largely the same goal that we had, you know, seven years ago now at, at Standard Treasury, um, is to build this this open developer-focused API platform. But, you know, I think a lot has changed since then. I think we were too early. Um but now the market's ready for it. And so it's working a lot better. So from my understanding, Treasury Prime partners with regulated banks and acts as the technology solution. This is a slightly different approach to companies like Green Dot and Rails Bank have taken, which become the regulated entity themselves. Do you think these solutions can coexist? And why do you think the solution that you guys are going down is better? Yeah, I mean, I think the market probably has room for both. We like our solution for a couple of reasons, though. I mean, one is that um, if, if you're a fintech or even if you're a bank who wants to use API services, I mean, you want to work with a partner who's committed to that. And for us, that's our whole business. Um, you know, our we succeed or fail based on how good and effective our APIs are for our um, customers. For banks, it's different. Banks, it's it's you know one channel among many. Um, banks develop APIs because it advances their cause of banking, um, not necessarily for the API platform itself. And you know, separately, I don't know that banks are necessarily the best software development shops. Um, banks are really good at certain things. They're really good at banking. They're really good at risk management. Um, we like any piece of software, we would much rather be a vendor for them, specialize in it, and let them specialize in what they're good at. And I think that's that's a great way for all of us to work together. And and we think that's the, the way to get to the best outcome. How has the business been impacted by COVID over the last six months? Logistically, it's been it's been tough. I think that our, our culture had been a very in-person culture. I think all of us really enjoyed seeing each other in the office every day and getting to, to sort of collaborate in person. And so, you know, that's all had to change. We've all been working from home now for, oh, I don't know, what, six months or so. Um, so moving the entire company sort of online, remote, I mean, it's, you know, that's not unique to us. A lot of companies have had to face the same thing. Um, and, you know, we've made the adjustment, but I think that's been the hardest thing. Um, I think, you know, one thing I always think about is how do we keep the team, um, happy and like feeling connected even when we're all remote and just in our homes. So like, you know, we started doing, um, happy hours on zoom and we try and play board games remotely. Uh, you know, we, every couple of weeks, the company sends out a snack box to all of our employees to sort of, you know, simulate the, uh, 
the kitchen at work where we might have snacks normally. Um, so we've tried to do, you know, little things like that just to, to feel a little more normal, but you know, it's tough. Um, I mean, as far as like the business itself goes though, I mean, our, our growth was strong before it remains strong. I think, um, we haven't, at least so far, we haven't really seen negative effects from the pandemic. So we're lucky for that. I think keeping that employee cohesion and trying to simulate some of the random conversations you would have in an office is, is really difficult, but I like the approach you guys are taking. I think the snack box idea is really good because I've definitely heard that some uh, tech company employees really used to like the snacks and stuff that they get at the office and it's hard to replicate that, but uh, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we try and do a rotation of who gets to pick too. So every couple of weeks, it's a it's a new it's a new box. It's a surprise. So that's fun. Nice, I like it. Yeah, you know the hard thing too is we're growing so fast. Our team's expanding. I mean, we have a good number of employees now who we've hired since the pandemic started. They've never been to an office. They've never met us in person. We we met them, interviewed them, hired them, work with them completely remotely. Um, so that's that's a tough thing, right? How do you, how do you bring in new folks onto the project and, and make them feel like they're part of the team? That's something we, we think about a lot, but it's no, seems to be no magic bullet for. Yeah. I've definitely not heard of any solution for that. And I think trying to embed the culture in, in new employees is difficult as well. Um, there's only so much you can do over zoom and you miss those, some, some of the cues that you get just from talking in person. Um, it's definitely hard. I, I, interviewed and started my summer internship all, all remote and I mean fortunately I was able to go into the office one day a week for a few weeks at the end of it and it was just very nice to see the people I've been working with in person and socialize a little bit more so I definitely feel that yeah I mean we're all looking forward to getting back to the office although um you know in, in the in the interests of adapting to the new world we've also said it's it's perfectly okay for folks to be remote indefinitely if they want to, and, and we're hiring people, you know, with, with that in mind. And so I think, you know, even after all of this is over, some of those changes are going to stick. Um, and, and we'll, you know, the folks who want to go back to the office, we'll make sure that there's an office for them to go back to, but it won't be a requirement. Who are Treasury Prime's customers and what's the typical use case for Treasury Prime? So we serve fintechs and banks. Our first customer was actually Radius Bank. Um, and, you know, selling into banks is always, a, is always a tricky thing. And, you know, we went into this assuming that getting the first bank to, to sign up with us would take a year, something like that. And, um, you know, we, we started off in Y Combinator um, kind of right after we started the company. Um, and we ended up getting hooked up with Radius Bank. Um, we met the team there and um, we ended up deciding to work with them and, and vice versa very quickly within a couple of months. Um, and so basically the first you know, six months of our existence kind of while we were doing Y Combinator, while we were just getting set up, we were, we were frantically trying to um, build and ship products for, for Radius and, and build that partnership. Um, and so the first thing that we um, shipped for them was essentially a way to open bank accounts um, completely online in a completely automated way. And, um, you know, that's just one of the many things that our API developer platform can do. And, and banks, including Radius, um, 
they use that functionality not just for the fintechs that they might want to serve, but for themselves. Um, so that's that's what we shipped for Radius. I think like it really resonated with them that we were that we were willing to move fast. You know, when you're brand new as a startup, your most important asset is how quickly you can move. And we were just very upfront with Radius. We said, hey, you know what? We're doing this startup accelerator. We're in Y Combinator. And we have this thing called Demo Day coming up in March. And it's really important for us to show that we've been making a lot of progress since then. So, you know, the most important thing for us, if, if you want to do this with us, is we want to have you live by Demo Day. And, you know, compared to so many other vendors that they were talking to, I think that just really resonated with them. I said, wow, you're willing to move that fast. That's amazing. You know, in, in banking so often, this stuff ends up taking such a long time. Um, and I think that's that's probably what actually tipped them over the edge wanting to work with us is just understanding that we were completely aligned on on wanting to get to market as quickly as possible. And so that's what we did. Um, we shipped our platform um, to Radius. They started doing online account opening. And then, you know, that was a two and change years ago now. And and since then, we've just been expanding with them. We've, you know, added all sorts of fintechs um, at Radius. We've expanded to other banks as well, and just grown from there. But we serve both, and and you know, ultimately, our goal is we want to help um, fintechs and banks build the most innovative financial products and get to market as quickly and as easily as possible. Do you think there's a lack of open APIs in banking in the U.S.? I, I'm from London, and most banks have been forced by regulation to have APIs, but it seems screen scraping is a lot more commonly done over here and tellers trying to reverse engineer banks' private APIs. And there's a kind of different, a few different approaches. What are your kind of thoughts behind that? Yeah. I mean, the US market is super different here than, than the UK and Europe and, and Asia, right? I mean, we have a ton more banks. I mean, even the number decreases every year, but we still have I don't know, on the order of 5,500 banks in the U.S. Um, and our regulators are apparently much more reluctant to take that kind of top-down approach and, and mandate anything. So I think it's it's over here you've seen that, you know, the market has tried to evolve solutions. I think one thing when we think about open APIs, like in the U.K., folks like to talk about them in like very broad strokes, but we end up lumping too many things into the same bucket, right? Um Banks do so much um, that just saying an API almost doesn't cover it, right? It's like if I'm if I'm thinking about APIs for opening accounts versus lending versus payments. I mean, these can be hugely different products. I think there are like a good a good array of API solutions that have sprung up in the United States. Um, obviously, we think ours is a great solution, um, but it is pretty different than the UK. From our perspective, we're, we're almost agnostic to it. Our goal is to just help help banks, help fintechs. If if there's a sort of top down standard that gets imposed, you know, we very well could sell software to to help banks comply with that. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that that's the best way to advance the the cause of innovation there, though. You mentioned broadly that you know not all APIs are the same. So, what makes a good API versus a bad API? I think there are. There are objective factors like, um, you know, how easy it is to integrate um, with your app, how easy it is to program against, the cost of doing that, you know, how flexible is the technology, how reliable is it, is it well documented? Um, and, you know, maybe there are some more subjective factors tied there, like 
Do other developers think the design is good? Is it understandable? Is it something they want to use every day or is it, you know, a pain in the butt for them? Um, I mean, we also think that there's a lot that goes on um, in a good API kind of behind the scenes and they're more human factors. They're not, they're not purely technical, right? Good API has a, has a strong team behind it, strong company behind it because, you know, when things are going right, it's, it's easy enough to, to deal entirely in software. It's, it's when things go wrong, when there are exceptions or something breaks. And, um, you know, I think that if, if you've been, if you've been around banking long enough, you, you, you know, that the toughest scenarios are the sort of exceptional cases. And, and that's when it really matters. The, the team that you have working with you, it really matters that you can, you know, talk to your banker. You can, you can uh, talk to the, to the team that's running the, the software if necessary, get help. Um, and so we see that as like a, you know, first order problem, just like the technology is. You mentioned a couple of times there about team and obviously the Treasury Prime team has a very deep background in finance from your work with Standard Treasury and your time at Silicon Valley Bank. How important do you think that is in the fintech space specifically, given the high regulations and complexity of, of the industry? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely a lot to know. And I mean, one thing I think that we've learned about banking as a space is that i mean a lot of that knowledge is it's just very institutional right you know what one thing i've always wanted is and every time we hire someone we get this question hey what can i read you know so that i that i know everything i need to know when i start the job and you know i've got a couple of books there's a book payment systems in the u.s has a coin on the cover that's a good one but you know it's, it's not that long and sure isn't completely comprehensive um, I think the fact is, is a lot of this knowledge is just institutional. We ourselves, I mean, we've, we've just learned this over time. And, and from standard treasury to now, I mean, we've just been around it for, you know, seven years or so. You know, I, I and through Silicon Valley Bank, I don't really feel like I have anywhere near a, a deep expertise in, in banking or how banks work. I mean, we know what we know, but but boy, I mean, it's it's a it's a big corpus of knowledge. It's a big market. You know, I think from the outside, a lot of people look at banking and they think that it's it's almost a single thing, and it's not, right? Banks specialize. Even within a bank, there's many different lines of business. There's a ton of nuance to learn. Um, it's just a tough thing to learn. I think that you know, for us, it's been it's been a real asset that we have that experience. I think that it resonates when we go into a bank and we and we talk about working with them and and partnering with them. I think that the the bankers recognize that we have that experience and that that makes them more interested in working with us because we can empathize with their needs. Um, and fintechs too, right? We've, we've seen so many fintechs over the years go by. I think we've really built that empathy. I think it helps, you know, it's hard to quantify, um, but it certainly informs everything we do. And um, Hey, you know, if, if you, if you find a book, Michael, where this stuff's written down, I can, I can give it to folks to help ramp them up. Let me know. Cause um, I think it's, I think, it's not well documented out in the world right now. I would completely agree. I'm searching for a similar book myself just to try and understand <laughs> the complexities. And yeah. I don't think it'll ever be one book. It will probably be a 10 book series given you know the, the very different activities that banks get up to. Absolutely. You mentioned that you've seen a lot of fintechs come and go, especially for fintech founders that don't have this deep background in banking, in finance. What what are they typically most surprised about? Are there any common themes that 
surprise them generally. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, you know, like a lot of startups, right? It's um, you, when you, when you first start working on it, there's almost a, uh, the, your naivete is an asset in a lot of ways, right? If it's like, I don't know how many startup founders have said this. It's certainly like a piece of advice you hear around Y Combinator a lot. It's like, man, if I knew how hard it was going to be, I never would have started. Right. Um, and it's like from the outside, you say, Hey, I'm going to start this, this FinTech. It solves this problem. I can't believe, you know, the incumbents are so, so silly as to not be solving this problem well today. And, and then once you get into it, you, you find all the historical reasons, you know, why the world is the way it is and, and why it's hard to change. So, yeah, I mean, what do people get surprised by? It's, it's, I think it's, it's everything we just talked about, right? It's all that depth of institutional knowledge and sort of inertia in the banking system and like why these things are hard to change. Um, you know, more tactically, there's, there's a, just a ton of things, you know, like um, all the incentives and like how banks and fintechs actually make, make revenue. Like, you know, like one, one thing a lot of people think is like, Hey, I'll, I'll just make interchange on debit cards and, and that'll be all the revenue I'll need. And you get into that and you realize, oh, maybe there's not as much money there as you thought. Right. Um, I think that like, that goes to a trend, right. Of like, um, we're starting to see a wave of fintechs now that um, kind of have a little more of that um, knowledge and maybe are looking at um, business models that are more complicated than just, Hey, I'm going to offer a checking account and, with a debit card on it. Right. I think that that's worked great for a lot of fintechs, but, um, you know, as, as we, as we go on and as fintech matures, we're going to see more and more complicated and, um, maybe nuanced takes on how to build these products. Certainly. I think like if you are starting a fintech, you know, partnering with somebody like us or, you know, even one of our competitors is really the way to go. I think it really just, it helps your time to market. You know, it helps helps your cost structure. I mean, it's doing all of this stuff from scratch is really hard. And when you're first starting out, that's not always obvious, but you find it out pretty quick. And, um, you know, the reality is that like any like any business, right, you want to focus on where you're differentiated. You want to focus on your product and the part of it that's really delivering value. And, and frankly, a lot of this sort of infrastructure level stuff that we do that we're trying to solve for everyone, um, you know, it's at some level it's commodity and it's, it's not going to be value accretive for your particular FinTech to reinvent that wheel. You briefly mentioned their competitors. What do you admire most about your competition? Whether that's specifically a company or their approach or other founders? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one thing that's really changed since we started standard treasury, how many years ago now, um, you know, back then, I think people didn't even realize that this was a problem or a market at all. And since then, I mean, you know, right now fintech is hot. Apparently, um, <laughs> at least that's what that's what investors tell me. Um, but you know, all sorts of folks are starting fintech companies. Um, you know, there are there's Treasury Prime exists. You know, we're we're here to sort of help folks build that infrastructure out. And you know, we have a variety of competitors. It's it's obvious now that this is a market, that this is a, this is a, a problem space that people care about. I think, um, you know, our competitors have been, have, have done a great job at that. I mean, some of our competitors have spent a ton of money on marketing 
And, um, you know, they've really helped convince people that this is an important area to look at. Um, so we, we certainly love that about them. Are you guys worried at all about being disintermediated? So obviously you enable fintechs through you guys to connect with banks. There's a case that somewhere down the line, banks might start going directly to the fintechs. Is that something you guys are concerned about? Sure. I mean, and, and honestly, some banks, some banks do go directly to fintechs, right? I think, you know, for us, it kind of comes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, where we specialize in building these APIs. We specialize in building this infrastructure. The value we provide is that, um, you know, we're able to focus on this and do a great job at it for our customers, banks and fintechs. And, you know, the reason they use us is because they understand that, you know, for, for the cost, for the small cost that, that we charge, um, you know, we're really, we're really helping move them forward a lot more quickly than if they were doing it themselves. Um, and, and that's our job, right? That's like, Hey, you know, if, if we're talking about Twilio or something, you could go directly to AT&T and, and set up a connection to them and send a text message. And yeah, you'd probably save a few cents. Right. But the reality is Twilio's figured out all the weird edges here. You should just pay, pay the extra couple cents um, because it's that's not that's not what really matters for your business. Twilio is going to help you go faster. It's just like Treasury Prime is going to help you go faster with your fintech. And you know the reality is we're, we're not we don't we're not running some big monopoly that we're trying to you know defend against here. Um, we're not worried about being disintermediated in that way. We think we're a growth business. We think this is a growth market. And we want all the incentives to be aligned around us providing a lot of value and. Um, the fact is, is if our customers are, are disintermediating us, it's because we're not doing our job and we're not providing that value. If you look, you know, five years in the future, where, where do you see Treasury Prime? What What's changed? What's stayed the same? What are you guys working on? Right now, we're really focused on, on growth. I think that um, we want to add a lot more fintechs. We want to add more banks. Um, we want to grow the platform. Um, I think that we're really just at the beginning of fintech. You know, I think about, um, you know, in, in spite of some of the, the bigger successes in fintech that we've seen lately, you know, Chime comes to mind, um, many others. I really think we're just at the beginning here. You know, I look at like, what's, what's the total deposit base of the United States? It's like, I don't know what, $11 trillion or something like that. I think just in commercial banks. Um, you know, I think about like, what's the, what's the total deposit base of all fintechs? I mean, it's billions now, surely, but you know, it's, it's, it's probably not trillions. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of growth here to be seen. I think that, um, you know, it's hard to say how all the markets are going to shake out. Um, one thing we know for sure, especially with COVID is that, um, you know, a ge- geographic based strategy where banks are building branches, I mean, that's done, right? Um, maybe, maybe the, the biggest banks like a chase. I mean, I live here in Lafayette, California. There's a new chase private client branch right up the block. That's great. Right. It's great for chase, but you know, smaller banks, fintechs, that's not going to be, that's not going to be the path to growth. Um, and so, you know, what is all of this going to look like in, in five, 10 years? I think that like banks are going to be looking for ways to grow. Fintechs are going to be looking for ways to grow. It's it's going to be through strategies that look like what the best fintechs are doing today, um, where it's online, and you know our software will help enable that.
Um, some banks will adapt and they'll they'll make great businesses here. Um, some banks won't. You know, they they might get uh, rolled up into into their bigger competitors. And um, you know, fintechs right now, where there are there are what dozens, hundreds of fintechs out there who are who are all working on their own particular corner of this problem. And so I think there's going to be a lot of successes there. And so the big ones will grow and they'll look more and more like banks. And um, it's, it's a very exciting time, right? Because this whole market's changing a lot. And so um, our goal is to just help everybody build the most innovative products they can. I guess you guys benefit from the overall just growth of the ecosystem. The more fintechs that are starting, the more banks that want to partner with them and, and get involved all kind of leads to a, a good environment for Treasury Prime. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen that since we started. I think one of, the, one of the lessons that we've learned since starting Standard Treasury is that, boy, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. It's a lot more fun to do this stuff when the market's working for you than working against you. Last time around, we were really just too early. One of the interesting things that changed was like in around 2015, Capital One announced that they were moving some large portion of their operations onto AWS. You know, the crazy thing is when we first started Standard Treasury, we were entirely on-premise because that's what the banks required. And, you know, deploying on-premise, it, it's a tougher it's a tougher thing. It meant our cost structure was much larger. So probably the, the cost to start working with us to a bank was maybe a million, million dollars a year, something like that. That's a pretty high bar, you know. You've got to be a pretty big bank to be able to, to place that bet on a startup. And what's cool now is that ever since Capital One did that, basically um, almost all banks are moving to the cloud. Um, we run an AWS. They, um, they're they fine with that now. And that's really cool because it means our cost structure can be um, you know, much much thinner. We can, we can offer much lower sort of starting prices for our banks. And that opens up the, uh, the number of customers that, that we can take. Um, and we can run the business more like a SaaS business. Um, so we really like that. Um, the market is in a place, I think, where everybody everybody's interested in this now. Everybody understands how important it is. And so that's that's really cool. And it helps us in a way that you know we, we didn't have for many years. You mentioned banks transitioning to AWS and the cloud in general, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you see a point in time where you know banks' legacy infrastructure systems is a known issue they spend billions just maintaining what they currently have do you see a world where they fully go into the cloud i mean that would be a huge upheaval for a jp morgan a Citibank to to really do that i don't know if i ever see that happening it might, might just be a slow transition they launch a digital bank that's you know the stack is on the cloud and then they slowly just move people over over the course of 20 years but i wonder what your thoughts are on that I think it'll happen, right? I mean, it, it has to. It's, I think it's kind of like, uh, you know, from the vantage of like, from the vantage point of like 1910, I feel like it's sort of asking like, do you think the, you know, the, the post office will always use horses? You know, it's, it seems like at some point they'll probably be running entirely in the cloud. I mean, if you go to, you know, big banking conferences or, or whatever there, there's there's how many vendors there trying to pitch you on the why don't you spend fifty million dollars with me and we'll we'll you know migrate everything for you to a new core system in the cloud in one shot and, you know these 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 processes uh, have a pretty long history of failure um, for most banks where 
as you say, right? They'll spend millions of dollars on this stuff and they won't have a lot to show for themselves. So that's probably not a very good strategy for doing it. I think, um, you know, what will probably happen is that um, as the customers of banks are asking for more and more complex and sort of internet oriented products, um, banks will find that, you know, some of some pieces of their infrastructure are not able to support that and that they will end up replacing those pieces um, with newer pieces in furtherance of a better product. And, and I mean, this is something that, that we specifically do for the banks that we work with is when we, when, if you want to work with treasury prime and your bank, um, we basically come in and we say, don't change any of your existing systems, right? Um, Whatever you have right now is fine with us. We'll figure out a way to integrate against it. We'll figure out a way to sort of overcome its technical shortcomings. And most of the time we can make that work. Some small percentage of the time we can't though. And so we might say, Hey, you know what, this, this piece of your infrastructure um, is really not capable of supporting the products you want to support. And, you know, those are the cases where I think the bank has a, has a really good reason to replace that specific piece. And, you know, if you do that enough over time, um, as these sort of product requirements improve, yeah, I think we're going to see a world in a few years where banks aren't running this mainframe era technology anymore, but it's going to be like that, right? It's going to be product driven. It's not going to be like it driven. Um, that'd be my guess. So, yeah. It's an interesting perspective. I think there is going to be a huge demand on banks from you know, millennials, younger people who want these apps that do everything. And I remember reading somewhere, someone wanted their middle name on their debit card and the bank just couldn't do it because it was stored in so many different systems and it was just the most <laughs> complicated thing. Something you would think would be quite simple. And they just said they couldn't do it. And it's kind of crazy to think from the outside that, that that's how it is. I, I think it would definitely be pushed from customers that get some over the line, really. Um, would you really want to be a CEO to say, I'm going to rip up the entire core and replace it? It's a huge risk. Whereas I think if it comes from the customer. It's a huge risk. Yeah. If it comes from the customer, it's far easier. I mean, every year we read another story about a big bank who's trying to do that sort of rip and replace thing. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's just not a good, not a good way to spend money for the bank. This is a place where the banks that succeed in adapting to the newest products and, and, and who are going to be around and successful in 20 years, this is a way in which they're going to look more like fintechs where they're going to have, you know, better software. And likewise, you know, the fintechs are probably going to look, the successful ones anyway, are going to look more like banks. Um, I think it's, you know, part of what we see in, in serving, you know, the sort of nexus between banks and fintechs is that the fintechs of today are the customers of the bank who have the highest technical requirements. And that's, that's part of what drives banks to work with somebody like us. It's part of what drives fintechs to work with somebody like us. Um, but, you know, in our view, you know, as time goes on, it's not just going to be fintechs. That, that sort of baseline level of, of requirement for sort of technical service is something that more and more customers, not just the companies we specifically call fintechs, but any big corporate customer, they're going to start to expect that stuff of their bank, right? Like if it's 1990 and, you know, and a, your bank offers you online banking, you're like, oh, that's a pretty cool feature if I'm somebody who's extremely online maybe i'd use that but it's maybe not mainstream but you know you get to you get to now and 
you know, boy, if your bank doesn't have an online banking system, I mean, would you bank, would anyone bank there? I mean, it just becomes table stakes. And so, you know, we really think as time goes on, it's, it's almost like fintechs are the tip of the spear for banks here. And, and as, as we go along, more and more of, of banks' customers, at least their corporate customers, are going to have these deeper technical requirements. And, um, and so the banks that, you know, start investing in that are going to be well served. I think that kind of dovetails with the you know the embedded finance theory that financial services will become embedded in companies that you wouldn't traditionally think of as finance companies. Whether that's you know uh, Phoenix enabling companies to bring payments in house and become their own payments facilitators, I think that trend is going to, as you say, put an increasing demand on a company's relationship with the bank. And if if they can't serve it, then they're going to take their business elsewhere for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe to use a cliche, this is like an unbundling of banking that's going on, right? Um, and um, yeah, it, I mean, that's why this is like a, a really fun time in the market is because I don't think anybody really knows what the stable equilibrium is going to be in how many years. Um, but yeah, definitely all of these services are going to get sort of unpacked and repacked in, in whatever ways make sense. And um and, you know, all the fintechs we see today and all the banks who are you know, doing work in this area to try and um, have more fintech-like products, I mean, these are the experiments that are going to that are gonna figure it out, right? So that's we, part of our goal is just to enable as many of these experiments as possible. Culture-wise, at, at big banks, do you think they really understand everything we've been talking about, that they need to start offering these digital products and embracing fintechs rather than seeing them as, as competitors? I think... There could be a a slow shift because banks don't really get it yet. Some do, some don't. But I just wonder through your conversations with banks, you know, do you think there's a, a cultural reticence and inertia that's still present in quite a lot of the big banks? Probably, yeah. I mean, it's hard to generalize about banks, right? Because they're so different, right? I mean, there's 5,500-ish of them. Um, you know, the incentives of a small you know, billion dollar bank are pretty different than the incentives of a trillion dollar bank. Um, and when you start talking about big enough banks, I mean, <clears throat> so many people work there, they have different opinions, you know, it could very well be that some portion of the sort of executive team, you know, believes in, in fintechs and wants to partner with them and another portion really doesn't want to. And, and so it's sort of what's, what's the opinion of the bank. I mean, um, it's complicated. I think is the answer, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, they're coming around, right. And different banks have, have different desires here. I think that, um, it's, it's definitely not as simple as like, I don't know, chase versus chime or something. That's, that's, uh, it's just like, not that interesting of a, of a way to slice it. I think that like, I, I view it much more as, as a, as a place of experimentation. Like there are certain services that banks, are better at delivering today. There are certain services that fintechs are better at delivering today. Um, you know, who, who can build the best products here in the most effective way? You know, that's, that's who's going to win. And um, if there are ways that it makes sense for banks to partner, and, and certainly we believe in, in that model a lot, right? That's what we do is we connect fintechs and banks. Um, we're going to try and make that happen. Um, I think that, you know, the worst possible thing that could happen here is like, um, basically this, this kind of innovation stops, 
right? And so whether it happens in the fintech world or whether it happens in the bank world, it's like they're not that different. And uh, the important thing is to run these experiments. If we switch gears now to your experience as an entrepreneur, you kind of alluded to Standard Treasury. You guys were a bit too early to market. And I guess that's one of the lessons that you've learned. But what other mistakes have you made and lessons have you learned along your way? Well, so many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the market timing is a big one, right? It, it really it really helps when the market's working in your favor. Um, startups are hard enough, you know, trying to push the boulder uphill um, can make it impossible a lot of times. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that, I don't know that we really, that I really have anything super unique to say here. I mean, I think there's a lot of just like conventional wisdom that's true, like, um, you know, interpersonal conflicts are a drag on productivity. So like, you know, the team has to be working well together. Um, you know, you, the team needs to be focused on the things that matter and that move the needle and not on sort of like sidetracks or, um, you know, points of, you know, if we're going to argue about like, hey, it's, is, should this button be blue or green on the website? I mean, that's probably not going to help your business very much, right? I mean, maybe unless you're Google or something and you've got a billion people clicking it. But, um, but you know, for most startups, it, it doesn't matter. And I think a lot of startups get bogged down in that kind of stuff that, that just isn't super important and doesn't move the needle. Um, I mean, the main thing, I guess, is like, you know, what, part of what was tough, I think, about Standard Treasury was that the market was too early and we just didn't have the customers to serve. You know, we had, um, we were working with Silicon Valley bank back then and that was great, but it was, it was very different than there's a certain discipline that you have to have when you have a lot of customers. And now we have dozens of customers that we're talking to every day that are asking for features that are growing and we need to make sure the service stays up and, and working well. And, and that's, it's just so different than, than standard treasury times when we had zero or one or two customers. Um, and that it's, you know, it's very, for a startup, it, having more customers is like the best thing you can do to focus. That's what matters. It'll be easy to get sidetracked when you don't have it. How do you balance, you know, customer A wanting this, customer B wanting something different, or do they all typically want similar things? Or do you, do you help shape what they might want to do? How does that work? It's sort of all of the above. I mean, we, you know, our, our customers who are banks, you know, want a certain set of things. Our customers who are fintechs want another set of things. You know, we want a set of things. The, the best is when those all overlap, you know, then it's a no brainer. Um, but, but otherwise, yeah, we have to balance, we have to balance the approach. You know, we have a vision for what we want the future to look like and what we think it should look like. And so, you know, we don't want to, we want to make sure that we're working towards that um, because it's strategic for us. Um, but, you know, we also want to make sure that along the way, um, everybody's happy. Everybody has what they need to be successful. Um, and so it's got to be a balance. Maybe what is that vision of the future? What does it look like? Um, yeah, well, we care about a couple of things. We care about growing our platform. Um, so just more banks, more fintechs, more customers. Um, and I think that a big, a big way that you do that is you make it easy for everybody, right? Uh, you make it easy for the fintechs because in a lot of cases that just getting started with a bank can take a long time. 
it can be really tough. Making that process easy and straightforward and fast for the fintechs is, is a great source of value. And likewise, on the bank side, you know, for most banks to start working with a customer as complicated as a fintech uh, requires a lot of work on the bank's side. And oftentimes it requires a lot of manual work by the sort of operational folks at the bank. Um, and because their systems are sort of like pre-internet, it can often be a dangerous thing for the bank, right? The bank has to have a lot of trust in the fintechs a lot of times um, because their systems can't necessarily safeguard um, all of the things that the fintech might do if they had direct access. And, and frankly, that's, that's, a, that's a big reason why a bank would want to work with somebody like us is because, you know, that's what our system is designed to do. It's designed to give the fintech everything they need and also protect the bank um, and protect those underlying systems so that, um, you know, everybody's doing what they should be doing. And, and, um, and so the bank can have that safety. So, yeah, I think in general, you know, onboarding and like the broad sense of like, how can we, how can you make it easy for people to get started, whether it's on the fintech side or on the bank side, and how can you make it safe for both sides to keep doing this stuff on an ongoing basis um, and not require a lot of manual oversight and um, manual work. That's, there's a, there's a lot of value to be made there. And so um, that's something that we think about a lot. And I think we're going to, we're going to keep working on that um, for the foreseeable future. What are some of the emerging trends within the fintech industry as a whole that you find interesting? Varo Money got their bank charter recently. Is that something you think is going to change the industry if they attempt to offer, you know, banking as a service through APIs themselves? Or do you think more fintechs are going to go down that route? Obviously, it's incredibly expensive and time consuming. So I, I don't get the sense that that's going to happen too much, but some will, will go down that route. Yeah. Well, the charter thing is exciting because we've been in a, I don't know, roughly decade long winter for getting charters um, and really not for any good reason either. Right. It's not like Congress passed a law that says no one can start a bank. It's that the executive branch decided that we're just not going to approve any more banks. Since the 2008 crisis, you know that that really hasn't been true. Nobody's been starting banks, and they've just started to trickle to trickle in now. So that's, I mean, that's that's cool, right? That that people are starting to be able to to do that again and and maybe innovate uh, with that model. You know, it's like you said, though. I mean, I think it's it's still incredibly expensive. I mean, I think um, Vero said it cost them what 50 or 75 million, something like that. So, you know, I think the reality is for most fintechs, even if they wanted to go that route, it's probably not a viable route unless you're an unbelievably good fundraiser. Um, and frankly, like, I'm not sure that it, even if you had the money for most fintechs, I'm not sure that you would want to because, um, you know, having having the bank charter, um, it, really, it really puts a lot of requirements on you. Um, you know, if I'm a fintech, if I'm a startup, um, I really want to focus on my product and, and focus in particular on the thing that, um, you know, is unique and differentiating. And the reality is like a bank charter, it's, it sure sounds cool, but like, it's kind of a commodity, right? I mean, there's 5,500 banks. If you can get the benefits of the charter by partnering with a bank um, and you don't need to put in the work and the 50 to hundred million dollars to do it, it's, it, for most cases, I would bet you that's a better deal. 
from Treasury Prime's perspective, I mean, we're sort of agnostic, right? We want to sell software to help to help everybody in this market. We think it's really cool and like exciting in the same vein of like, hey, let's run more experiments and like see how we can get the best products here. But I don't think that, you know, it's going to be a common, a common route. I think it's going to be um, something that's sort of reserved for the businesses who really have a particular need, who can get a particular value out of it. And in, I think in most cases, that's probably going to be bigger, um, bigger fintechs who are further. Investors have like asked us the same thing sometimes. They go, oh, maybe you should become a bank, right? Um, and, and sort of sell this API platform <laughs> as a bank. And we're like, you know, I don't know that that like, A, that doesn't, that's not really our model. So no. But even if it were, you know, that's not a decision that we necessarily would want to make on a sort of... Um, on like a values basis, like it's a decision we would want to make on an economic basis, right? We want to say, let's like look at the spreadsheet. Is it going to actually be value accretive to do this or is it not? Um, and I think that's like, like for most fintechs, I think like that's probably the better way to look at it, right? Like if I get this charter, is that actually going to move, move the ball forward for my business or not? And, you know, it, my opinion it's probably actually not the right move for most folks. Not yet. It's really interesting the difference in reaction to the, the financial crisis in the Europe versus the US where they seem to be protecting the larger banks here more and not approving any new banks. Whereas in Europe, in the UK, there's been a wave of new fintech banks popping up and they want to tie, encourage the competition. So that's been really interesting to see. But I think, as you mentioned earlier, the, the solely interchange model isn't something that can last. I think they're going to have to go horizontal and rebundle some of the products. You've got to get into lending, I think, where there's a lot more profit in it. It would be interesting to see if they come up with any completely new business models to make the economics work. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, money is like sells on a spreadsheet. So you'd think the marginal cost of a lot of these things in a fundamental way would be pretty low. Um, you know, does that mean we get to a world where like debit change is like debit interchange is more than enough, right? Um, don't, I, like, why not? I mean, a Gmail account is free. Google just shows you that little ad at the top. And like, you know, they make enough sense on that, that it covers the, the number of bits they need to store your email. I'm not sure money's really any different. Um, but you know, time will tell. Which thought leaders in the fintech space do you find interesting? Who do you follow on, on Twitter or social media? Yeah. Well, I'll shout out all of our all of our investors at QED, Maya Scarity, and Frank Rotman, and uh, Nigel, and everyone there. The reason that we ended up working with QED for our Series A is in large part because we we met them, and um, boy, they have such deep knowledge. I mean, nobody knows more about banking than them. It's it's really impressive. It's something that we're <laughs> we're we feel lucky to have access to um, to have them as advisors and investors. Frank is a prolific tweeter, so. Um, yeah, good stuff from him. And of course, Dan Kimmerling, uh, Desian's Capital. He was the CEO, founder of Standard Treasury. Um, we like to call Dan the mayor of fintech. I don't know that Dan <laughs> likes that, but we call him that, we call him that anyway. And uh, he's always always insightful. Yeah, I, I follow Frank on Twitter, and his you know his threads are just so insightful. It's Really, really interesting guy to follow. Yep. What other things do you like to read or watch or listen to? Are you a podcast guy? You know, books that you found interesting, 
can be completely unrelated to fintech. Yeah, I I like podcasts definitely. Um, uh, do a lot of podcasts. Great for listening in the car. I have a one year old, uh, so past year at least had less time to do things like like reading and uh, <laughs> watching watching shows. But yeah, I mean in general, I'm like a nonfiction person. I like to read a lot of history and. You know, I have a Spanish Civil War by um, uh, can't recall the author at the moment, and um, you know, that's that's when I have the time. That's that's this kind of stuff that I read. Um, yeah, I can imagine a newborn but, cuts down on your free time to do that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between startup and and one year old, that pretty much is my entire day. <laughs> I always like to wrap up with a, a final question, and well, I guess it's more of an ask. Who else in the fintech space do you think would be a good guest for the podcast? Um, anyone from QED, Dan Kimmerly, Aaron from Y Combinator. He was our he was our partner when we worked there, and he does all the all the fintech stuff for YC. Um, good, good guy. Very knowledgeable. Could be a great guest for him. He's in the area, so interesting. Okay, I'll try and reach out to him. I appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me. It's it's been really great to have you on as a guest and learn more about Treasury Prime and what you guys are doing in this space. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Good to good to chat. Great. Cheers, Jim. Thank you. All right. Stay safe. Thanks. Yeah.